Well, good morning again. Please open with me in your copy of Scripture to 3 John. And as you're doing so, I want you to imagine that you are a believer, a Christian living in the first century. You have some means of a house. You likely have a house church that meets in that house. You're seeking to be faithful, okay? You're seeking to be faithful. You're aware that from the time of Pentecost that the spread of the gospel has been dependent on workers going out, receiving nothing, having nothing, particularly from the pagans, and relying on the hospitalities of other Christians to to, to do the work of the ministry. You're aware of this in your station of life. And you know that because of the means that you have, particularly that you should be about supporting such people because of what God has given you. But here's what you're also aware of. You're also aware that people have gone out who truly believe that they are being faithful And they truly believe that they are workers for the truth, workers for the name and for the cause of Christ, when in fact, they aren't. They're not. And you're aware of at least one influential church leader in the area who's calling into question the integrity of the very message and even the authority of the folks you would be putting up, potentially, or have been accommodating. In fact, this person would prevent you from doing so if he could. Maybe try to put you out of a church if a church didn't meet in your own home. And so you're sitting there. You're thinking about all this. Had some spare time, let's say. Considering all these realities. And all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. It didn't fade away like that, probably, but there was a knock at the door. And you open the door, and there's a group of folks there you've never seen before. And they say, hey, we're hoping you can accommodate us as we work for the gospel. We've got a letter from uh, the elder here to put your mind at ease. They pull out a letter, hand it to you. And you open it up and read Third John. Right here. Such is the position of Gaius. It's Gaio in Greek, in English, Gaius, Gaius, doesn't matter. It's the same, it's the same name. This letter provides an incredible little snapshot. An incredible little snapshot into a relationship that apart from what we read here, we know nothing about, into circumstances apart from what we read here, we know nothing about, and with a conclusion and or resolution that we are not told about. And yet, for everything that isn't told and for everything that isn't clear, what's clear is clear. In 3 John, what's clear is clear. Christians should work for the truth by supporting gospel workers and by imitating what is good. It's not the only way this should work for the truth. That's not what it says, but 
one of the ways that you work for the truth is by supporting gospel workers and by imitating what is good. The, the author of 3 John is content to refer to himself as the elder, just like 2 John. And following our discussion last time where I said 2 John and 1 John probably circulated together and almost certainly were written by the same person, that would we're going to go with 3 John is also written by the apostle John. Same region. We can make some inferences from the content about the time frame, but the truth is we don't know exactly when it was written because this is a personal correspondence to a dear friend of John, someone who can, he considers to be faithful, the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in the truth. This is not a letter to the churches like First and Second John. Okay, assuming they circulated together in 2 John's the cover letter for 1 John. This is something very different. This is a personal letter. John is aware of a situational problem that's brewing. There's a problem that's brewing. It's festering. And the fact that he sends this letter is evidence itself that he at least entertained the possibility that his friend Gaius could be suffering from undue influence from this troublemaker in the region. In other words, although we like to read it on this side of canonization, as though this is just some slam dunk, and clearly this is what Gaius is going to do here, there's no indication that that's what John thought in the moment. He's writing this letter because perhaps Gaius himself stands to be influenced by this egomaniac and local bully that was not welcoming the folks John sent, and by extension, John himself. And so in a manner that very closely parallels, more so than first or second John, kind of the conventional Greco-Roman, which is like Greco-Lemon, except actual, actually refers to something. Um, he greets Gaius with something that I have prayed over our church this week over and over and over. In verse 2, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Can I just say that's a great verse to try to commit to memory? It really is. Memorize that verse. Beloved, I pray that all will go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This verse was famously misappropriated by Oral Roberts as he turned from his poverty preaching to his all of life prosperity gospel preaching and seed faith preaching and laid the foundation for the prosperity gospel movement. Hey, it says, I pray that all may go well with you. And he kind of was doing some Bible study and he opened up to this verse. I was like, oh, here it is. Now I should go from one bad theology to another one. But so that's what happened. But the idea is this. We shouldn't be over. We shouldn't over interpret this as beautiful as it is. John is using the conventional language that would have started a Greco-Roman letter. And uh, this just is the conventional kind of greeting here. This doesn't mean that John did not pray for these things in particular. He didn't care about Gaius' soul or her health, uh, his health, excuse me. But the pray language here is just a part of convention. Just like, and I just learned this this week, the word goodbye is actually an evolved contraction of God be with you. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Maybe you did. I didn't. 
goodbye, God be with you. It can, in other words, you could say goodbye, and you're not referencing God at all. You, you might even believe in God. You can still use the word. Similarly, this is the conventional language that Gaius is using here, despite the fact, regardless of how much he actually prayed. And, and I'm certain that he did. I'm certain that he did. But we cannot take the path of Mr. Roberts and press this for more than what it actually is, this con- kind of conventional greeting. Having said that, it has been my explicit delight to pray this over our church this week. It has been an explicit delight to, to pray for that, that your path in life, that the course that you are taking, that it goes well. That in a season where it seems like everybody is sick, that you may be in good health, and that it goes well with your soul. That's what I want. So in addition to being a friend, Gaius is someone who's well-known for his hospitality. We see that. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So clearly, this is not his first time showing hospitality. And on previous occasions, he has housed people, and they have gone back, and then they have given a report. They've gone back to John's church, or the churches in the region, and they have testified to his faithfulness. They've affirmed, hey, this guy, Gaius, he is, he is walking in the truth despite these challenging circumstances. And it's this faithfulness that John says brings him the most joy. And it is a verse that every pastor can deeply sympathize with. He writes, for I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You know, we have such a caring congregation. I, I, I feel so well loved well supported and sometimes people ask me you know what can I do to help what what can I do like is there something I can do and sometimes there is some kind of concrete need but generally you know what I need you to do walk in the truth you know that difficult marriage that you're in be faithful because you love Christ and covenant you know that despair that you're tending to because of this this or that circumstances cling to hope You know, when you're tempted to compromise purity when no one is around, stay the course. That is what every pastor, that's what brings every pastor joy, to know that people are walking in the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so walk in the truth. That's what you can do to bless my soul, okay? So having opened the letter, John narrows down the scope. And the shape of Gaius' faithfulness even more directly to that hospitality element, something that he may very well be tempted to stop showing because of what we're going to see in just a little bit here. Beloved, again, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Hospitality, again, is something that he is known for and something that he's known for despite the fact that those he hosts are by and large complete strangers to him. He's never seen them before. The only reason for them knocking on his door is fellowship in Christ in need of accommodation. And so we have every reason to believe when he opened that door and he saw Demetrius holding this letter, that he had never seen him in his whole life or anyone else who was standing there with him. All that he learned, we would imagine quickly, is that he had shared brotherhood with these folks. 
They shared together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were united with Christ together, and that was all that was required for him. That's it. That's all that he needed to know, that they were faithful, that they went out for the name, that they were walking in the truth. It's all that was required for him to be generous, open up his home, and that's what people had reported about him. That's what it says. They testified, verse 6, to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. These people have gone back. And like, there is a man named Gaius. And I tell you what, man, he is faithful. And he is a servant. And he, used, he has used his means to accommodate us so well. The, the, the you do well here is not some kind of prediction of how someone's life's going to go. You will do well. It, it, it's, it's, again, it's another convention. It's like, please send them along. He says, please send them along. Send them along in a manner worthy in a manner worthy of God. It's not exactly, not entirely clear what this means or exactly what it would entail, but at the very least, John is saying to take in and then send out, send, take in, send out, send back these brothers in a manner that recognizes they have left behind home. They have left behind comfort. They don't, they don't have a bag full of money. And they are relying on the hospitality of other Christians to ju- for their basic needs. This isn't like our situation now. You can go do gospel ministry just about any city and stay at a hotel just fine. That's not the case then. People went out, often knowing not knowing where they were going to stay exactly. He says, you'll do well to send them on their way in a manner that recognizes how they have sacrificed in the God that they serve. And these people haven't gone out to make a name for themselves, have they? They've gone out for a different name. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the pagans or the Gentiles. The name here, which is used elsewhere in the New Testament, mostly in Acts, once in Romans, refers, of course, to the name of Christ. This was a common way to refer to the Christian movement, those who are going out, those who belong to the name. And these brothers uh, had left home for the comfort, they left the comfort of home, excuse me, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the name of Christ. And in doing so, they know they are not going to accept or receive the help of pagans. Now, pagans is a, this is a superior translation here. You've got Gentiles, the ESV has Gentiles. Pagans is a superior translation. It's a better contextual translation of the ethnikos. This translation makes it sound like they wouldn't have taken aid from Gentile Christians. They were on like an exclusively Jewish mission around Ephesus. That's not it. The contrast here is between those who are part of the name and those who are not associating with the name. In other words, the idea is they're going out for the sake of the name, and they're not expecting, nor would they even take, aid from those who do not identify with the name, okay? That is, those of the nations, the pagans. And John provides an important principle then for uh, Gaius, and by extension for us. He says, therefore, we ought to support people like these, the folks he's staring at, 
that we may be fellow workers of the truth. Okay? So Gaius, unlike the, the people standing in front of him, he has not gone out for the sake of the name. It's not him. He's there with the house. He's there with the means. He's in the support role. He is facilitating the going out. He is facilitating the work of the gospel. And what uh, John tells him is, that doesn't make him second class. It makes him a fellow worker for the truth. He just plays a different role in the operation. To be a fellow worker for the truth is to work for the truth yourself. In other words, like I said last week, this is the exact opposite. This is the same principle but the opposite side of the coin from last week. Remember last week it was accommodating wickedness is, partic is participating in wickedness yourself. Here it is supporting those who are working for the truth. In so doing, you will be a fellow worker for the truth. Same principle, different side of the coin, the positive part of it. And he says, be that, Gaius, be that. He knows Gaius has heard these voices. He knows what's going on. He knows the buzz. He says, be that. Continue on. Well done. Don't be intimidated. Don't give up. So John turns to lay out what is likely the reason he sent this group of brothers to Gaius along with this letter, at this particular time. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. John uses the word church here. It is the standard word church, ecclesia. Somewhere in between Paul's local church and the universal body of Christ is how he uses that here. Somewhere in between. He's not talking about one local church. He's not talking about every church in the world. He's, something, he's talking about something that he has written and therefore sent. I mean, he didn't write it to, to you know, read it in his house. He's written and therefore sent something, a letter, to the church. Understood something like the church presence in that region is how I'm understanding that. Okay, The presence of the church in that region. Is he talking about First and Second John? That Diotrephes rejected. Is this a follow-up to that? We just don't know. Is it another letter? We just don't know. But it's a message that he wanted. He said, I've written something to him. He still wants them to hear. But there's a big problem. There's this guy named Diotrephes who apparently doesn't require any introduction. Gaius would have known him. He doesn't say Diotrephes. Oh yeah, remember him? Who's here he is and where's where he's at and all the rest. He, he already knows. He already knows. He gives a description of what he's doing and the question here is, what exactly is this guy's problem? You know, what exactly is the problem of Diotrephes? Was he one of the false teachers who had gone out? That John mentions in First and Second John? Maybe so. But the challenge with that is John nowhere calls him a false teacher. 
and he nowhere calls him an antichrist, which John is very comfortable doing. And we've heard that in First and Second John. Wouldn't it be odd if he was uh, promulgating the same heresy that we saw in First and Second John, denying that Christ had come in the flesh? But John doesn't even mention that as a problem. It seems odd. In fact, nothing that we read specifically only in 3 John would lead us to believe that he had anything but an orthodox Christology. That is to say, a theology of the person of Jesus. Maybe the problem is that Diotrephes is overzealous. Maybe he's, this, he's a leading figure in this church and he knows falsehood is going around. And so kind of in the spirit of 2 John which he may or may not have read, he just decided, you know what the best practice is here? Just to not accommodate anybody. We can't be sure. Frauds are coming. Frauds are coming among us. People show up. Oh, yeah, we uh, have a letter from the elders. Yeah, you did? You, did you write that across the street? I got, I got a letter too, right here from John. You know, this is our letter. Is he trying to defend the good of the church? It's hard to say so. The challenge with that is how John explicitly criticizes him. He doesn't say he's a guy with really good motives, just bad execution. He describes him as a guy who is, a def who is defiant, who is speaking wicked nonsense. And that's the case regardless of whether Diotrephes was a, a, a pastor or whether he was as influential in the church, likely because he had a house church, which would allow him to put people out of the church in some sense of the word. Regardless, though, he's an influencer. Maybe he has a bone to pick with John in particular. So he does, he's, not, you know, he's not putting out people who come in general. He's putting out people who come from John because he doesn't like John because of something. The truth is, we just don't know. We don't know what his problem is and speculation abounds. But, here's what we do know. This man loves his position. Okay? He loves his control. He loves the authority. We can just see him so tickled to have the power to kick people out and act like he runs things. He loves his own prominence. He puts himself first. That's the idea there. Now, the ESV says that he doesn't acknowledge our authority which is a shameless interpretation of what it actually says, which is just, he does not welcome us. Okay? Now, certainly, not welcoming those John sent would entail a lack of recognition of John's authority, but that's not what it says. And the reason that's important is because the ESV obscures that what Diotrephes is not doing is the very thing that Gaius is being urged to do, namely welcome and receive and accommodate those who have come particularly from John. So it is true, again, that in so doing, he's, he rejects them. He is rejecting John's authority and putting himself first, but he is not welcoming people. He's not showing hospitality. He's not showing hospitality. And you can imagine how awkward that would be if you were sent by an apostle down there and you have a letter, here it is, and some local church leader's like, nope, head on back. Like, where are we going to stay? Not my problem. We're trying to keep the purity of the church, or you tell John, too bad, or whatever it is. 
It had been tough. So his confusion about where authority lies in conjunction with his own self-love and pride is resorting, resorting is resulting in this unhospitable and even this vindictive behavior there in the church. And that's what John is concerned about. And furthermore, he is spreading malicious lies. He is slandering John and his folks even as he refuses to extend to them hospitality. And just like the person who isn't content to kind of be absorbed in their own error, you know, they want you to be about it too. That's exactly what he's doing. Not only does he not accept the people from John, he is trying to make sure that no one else does either. It's not his little private theology. It's, just, it's his th- that he believes he is doing something. We have every reason to believe that he's doing it. And he thinks that he's doing something good. He thinks he's doing something right. The pro, you know, we don't have a reason to think that Diotrephes is intentionally being duplicitous. He thinks he's doing something that's going to benefit the church when in fact it's not. He's very passionate. He's very confident. He is passionately and confidently wrong. Okay? He is wrong about what service to Jesus looks like with his influence. He is wrong about what service to Jesus looks like with his influence, regardless of what story you tell about why he's doing what he's doing. And so because of this, John says when he comes, and it's not entirely clear, he's talking about the if, it's not, it's not clear whether it's if he's going to come at all or just the, the, the part that's uncertain is the timing of the, of the visit. But John is going to address, and most likely in a very public way, some commentators even say they are convinced that John is saying that there's going to be a public showdown between him and Diotrephes. Now that would have been something to behold. But it's not because John has a big chip on his shoulder, but it's because the work of the gospel and people's connection to the church is being threatened by this man. And recall, unlike what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, if you got kicked out of your local church in the first century, where were you going to go? It might be the only church even close So for some people, what he was functionally doing is cutting him off from the body of Christ. This is serious business. John isn't trying to just one-up someone because he's an apostle and he's pulling the authority and submission card. He is concerned. He's concerned for the church. He's concerned for these people. And so having said that, he provides Gaius with the only exhortation, it's the only command explicitly. He's already given an implicit one. You'll do well to send them on. But this is the only explicit command in the whole letter. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Sounds a lot like John there, doesn't it? With his dualism. Doesn't that sound like what we've been accustomed to hearing? We have the from God language. You do good, you're from God. Does evil, haven't seen God. Two sides, two ways, two paths. Is this an implicit accusation that Diotrephes is not of God? Okay, given the context. Or is he a Christian who is merely acting like someone who is not a Christian? It isn't clear, but either way, given that he is the subject of the preceding material, certainly it's impossible not to make some kind of connection to him as the bad example. Right? Certainly that would be strange. Very straightforwardly, John is saying, do not imitate evil. 
Instead, imitate what is good. Imitate what is good. This is an exhortation that, of course, has very wide application, but we have to imagine in this particular case, Gaius would have understood it as being a good fellow worker for the truth by extending hospitality to these workers, to these people who have come. And it's not until this point in the letter where we actually meet the letter carrier. A guy named Demetrius. He's a letter carrier. He's the most prominent person among them. However you want to think of it. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. (laughs) There's a lot of truth and a lot of testimony going on here. But it all advances the same point. Apparently, Demetrius isn't just some nobody himself who has showed up. He, like Gaius, appears to be well-known just in a different region, up where John is. People think very highly of him. John himself, the Apostle John, can you imagine John giving you uh, this uh, commendation over your life? He gives it to this guy right here, Demetrius. He affirms him. And by extension, he would have been affirming those with him as legit. These are not frauds. This is John putting his stamp of approval on these folks. And so similar to how 2 John ends, he writes, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Maybe that see you soon clarifies that, you know, he wasn't talking about if he was going to come at all, just the time frame of when he was going to come. I'm going to come, but it may not be as soon as I would like. It's not clear. Of course, in one sense, as everyone recognizes reading this letter, and his visit would depend on how this letter was received, wouldn't it? Whether he showed up down there in one sense, and who he sent down there again, would likely be influenced, not to say he wouldn't end up going anyways, but to be influenced by how this was received. And so in hosting Demetrius and these brothers, he is hosting strangers, but John mentions, surprisingly, because that's that's probably not how you expected the letter to end with the language of friends. You probably could greet the brothers. So Pauline, greet the brothers, right? Is that what he says? The friends. He's probably drawing a distinction between brothers, Christians, that that he doesn't know, like the people who are in front of him, and people that he knows personally. Your friends send their greetings. And he says, greet my friends down there, each by name. I haven't forgotten about them. I'm still with you all. Christ is with us. These brothers have gone out for the name, but the friends have not forgotten you. What happened here after John, I'm sorry, Gaius, lowered that letter? He's now looking at a group of people who are hoping for a positive response. How did he respond? Did he invite them in? Did he shut the door? We aren't told. We aren't told explicitly. However, history has weighed in. 
Because the fact that 3 John was canonized into the Christian Scripture strongly suggests that 3 John stands as a reminder of faithfulness in the face of opposition and uncertainty. And that's our main point. That regardless, Christians should work for the truth by supporting gospel workers and by imitating what is good. Now, I just have two very simple things I want to say in application here. Fellow workers for the truth. To paraphrase one pastor, there are three options with regards to going out for the sake of the name. Go, support, disobey. That's it. That's it. Only three options. Go, support going, support those who are going, disobey. I love when it's that simple. Okay? So provided we don't want to disobey, we have these two options. To go out ourselves like these brothers have, or to support, play a supporting role like Gaius does. Both roles featured prominently here in the text. This is one of the reasons we have a very healthy amount of church budget allocated to supporting evangelism, discipleship, pastoral training, and ministries of mercy all over the world because we want to be fellow workers for the truth. When we read some, and many of you read them as well, some of the updates we get, at least from certain missionaries, I mean, everyone's life in here is a walk in the park compared to some of the stuff that, that I read. They are in situations where they desperately need accommodation. Certain, sometimes there's no one even around them, but we are trying to partner with them. So you should know that. I mean, if you, and it's not an escape card or something, but if you contribute financially to our church, then you partner with us in supporting uh, the work of the gospel all over the world on multiple uh, uh, continents and in multiple countries. Of course, your same contributions also support the work of the gospel ministry in this church. It supports my family. I'm keenly aware of that. But there is still reason to just to, to ask ourselves this morning about other opportunities that the Lord might bring before us, you know, individually or as families, to further partner with those working for the gospel, whatever that support may look like, including opening up our homes and inviting people in. It's true that the need to open up our homes and be hospitable where we live, the need is not the same. It just isn't. Okay? People who, can come, who want to come here for the SING conference as gospel workers, they might enjoy staying in someone's house and saving hundreds of dollars, but they don't need to in most cases. But nevertheless, our willingness to open our homes and be hospitable will tell us something about ourselves, won't it? It tells you a lot of things about yourself and your family, but here's one thing it could tell you. It could potentially, depending on how you think about it, indicate that you lean towards seeing your home, that that we lean towards seeing our homes as a castle for the nuclear family to hunker down. Instead of a place 
where we can share the culture we've created in our home and the amenities we have in the loving service of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You know, let me just say one of the best examples of this is, is at Christmas. I remember a pastor, another pastor talking about this as well. And some of you grew up in families like this. Maybe you had an exchange student at college or you had this person at work who didn't have anywhere to go. But Christmas time was family time. The Christmas meal was time for the... And what that means, of course, is just kind of the nuclear, the, the nuclear family. You can invite people over to your home, but not at times where you're trying to celebrate the birth of Christ. That would be, this is it's time for family time here. It's time to, this is where we hunker down together when we do this. And, you know, there is a healthy way to think about your home as a safe haven from a hostile world. There is, there is a very healthy way to do that. But every healthy thing can get unhealthy. And when our homes turn into places where we are drive home, pull up the drawbridge, and this is where we can, we don't have to try anymore. There's no more ministry that has to happen. There's no more this and that. I have reached my castle. And it's not a place where we're inviting people in and say, see how the Lord is, how can we bless you by bringing into the culture of our home, even just the accommodation of a bedroom perhaps in the loving service of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first, first thing. The second thing is imitating the good. You know, at one level, this seems like it's so obvious it's not worth mentioning. You don't have to be a Christian to imitate what is good. I mean, or at least to agree with the principle. I mean, you might think good is something else, but even people who don't profess Christ don't think you should imitate bad examples of what you're wanting to be. I mean, it's just bad best practice. You know, you don't, you don't look at me for as an example of how to be a good basketball player, okay? You look at uh, LeBron James or someone else besides him. But, uh, but, but uh, you look at someone who's a good example of uh, what they're doing. But this is qualified with an explicitly Christian understanding of the good, and by a proper understanding of imitating those two things. And I just want to close by talking about it just briefly. The good here is inseparably tied up with John's understanding of truth and love. That should probably come as no surprise to you so far. What the good is, is inseparably wed to John's understanding of truth and love, which themselves are inseparable. And so it's not... Imitate what looks good to you. That's not what it is. You can't read the verse that way. It's not imitate what looks good to you, what certainly not what feels good to you. You are supposed to imitate what is good according to God's standards. Maybe something looks good to you and you find someone doing it, but it's actually not good because it's undercutting the gospel or it's immoral, and you justify it by saying, look, well, there's someone else doing it, and they seem to be you know, a decent person or whatever other excuses you make. I got a, now I've got an example, and here's how I can do this. No, the good on Scripture's terms, particularly here as it's defined by John, truth and love, a love that results in obedience to Scripture and ob obedience to the commands. The second thing is that when we hear of 
someone imitating someone else, we often associate something very superficial with that, right? As someone else. Regrettably, for me, but probably only for me, um, Nick Saban retired this week, for those of you who don't care about such things. And um, almost as famous as that was a wide receiver that he had named Rob Ezell early in his tenure who used to do Nick Saban impressions. Now you can imagine he never did it in front of Nick Saban because that probably would not have gone well. But his Nick Saban impressions are hysterical. And ESPN caught them, and I, remember, I watched them again this week just, to, just so that I could freshen up for this illustration. And he does sound remarkably like Nick Saban in what he does and how he's yelling at the players and all the rest. But it's immediately obvious that he is nothing like Nick Saban at all. It is the most superficial form of mimicry, and it is very funny. But it is the most superficial form of imitation. He's imitating him, but he's not actually like him or even becoming like him. That's not what this imitate is. That's not what this imitate is. John is not asking us to pretend the behavior of other Christians, regardless of how mature they are, regardless of how much good they're doing. He's not asking anybody to pretend, nor is he asking anybody to go adopt the vocabulary of other people or present themselves the same way or use the same phrases or go read the same books and kind of conform yourself to someone else's image. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is, find those who are doing good according to Scripture, according to the truth that has been delivered. Find those, okay, and once you have identified those who are doing the good as outlined by the Word, then follow their examples as they do the good not the personal flavor with which they do it. Because frankly, you're not made to do it their way. It's just not going to be the way you pursue Christ in the particulars and the kind of just the personality even with which you do it is not going to be like me. It's not. It can be just as faithful, more faithful, you can, but it's going to nevertheless be different because we're all different. This is not a call to become like a little version of somebody else in terms of adopting all of their idiosyncratic personality types, uh, their personality uh, uh, quirks, and, and their reading list, and the way they dress, and kind of, I want to be, this is what faithfulness looks like. It looks like the man or woman who, and then you kind of have this ideal picture. No, look at what is good according to the text. Find those who are living like that. And then see how they live like that and how you can live like that as a result without trying to be a clone. And so the question here is this, who do you seek to imitate? What is it? What good is it that you seek to imitate? Who are you looking at? Who is walking in the truth? Who are the most prominent examples in your life, would you say? Could you list three? I would, it would be amazing if most people could, could list three, I would say. Unless you're, unless you're a child listing your parents. That's cheating. Okay? But that's great. I hope they are good. I hope they are prominent examples. But if you're an adult here, who are the prominent examples in your life that you look to to imitate the good? You say, yeah, I see that person doing the good. I don't live 
the details of the Christian life like they do, but I want to pursue the good like they do. Who is it? This is an area in which all of us need to pray for wisdom. Why? Because imitating the wrong people can wreck your life. While you think you are serving Jesus, and while you think you are maturing, and it happens so often, you get months, years down the road, and you realize, what have I been doing? Why have I been imitating this kind or this brand of person? Following, imitating the wrong folks has terrible consequences. On the other side, though, imitating those who are walking in the truth and who are doing good, following their example, just getting alongside them can accelerate your growth in Jesus Christ. I want to close with an illustration I think that I've given before about a professor in seminary who was very influential in my theological and personal development. He's a scholar, prolific Greek and New Testament scholar, and um, I told him right when I got up there, like second week, I want to try to get around you as much as possible. That's what I said. I, I'm going to be in your study. I'm going to be in your house. You get to the parking lot, I'll be there. You know? Because I knew that I wanted something about this man. There's actually two of them. I'm only talking about one in this moment. Um, there were two of them, and I wanted them to rub off on me. I wanted to imitate them. I saw their life. And both of them have very different personalities than me. So it wasn't like I was trying to become one of them. I wasn't in it. But I knew that so much more is caught than taught. So what did I want to do? I said, I'm going to just be around you as much as possible. And with shameless uh, disregard, uh, really, then later it turned to shameful. But anyways, I would just walk in his office while he was writing a letter, sit down at his desk, and just start asking questions. I'd just interrupt the man doing scholarly work. And you know what? He never kicked me out. He didn't. I ended up staying a semester in his home. Who are your prominent examples? Who do you catch things from, even if you're not taught by them as some kind of teacher? May God give us wisdom and grace as we imitate what is good and we shun what is evil. Let's pray. God, we're once again reminded of our weakness and our ability to get excited about the wrong things, be distracted so easily, follow wrong examples, lapse into the who's winning, who's losing, the culture war, And so, Lord, I pray that we could just reset for a moment here this morning and think about the means that we have with an eternal perspective, how we can show hospitality, how we love the brothers and sisters in Christ and how we are fellow workers for the truth. And Lord, I pray that there, if there are people who are imitating bad examples or no examples at all that you would work in their heart to change that, even now. That they would take some concrete action steps instead of just hearing a, an exhortation about it that doesn't do anything in their life. That they would take ownership of something like that and say, yeah, I, I need to find the good. To, I need a clear picture of what this looks like. Bless us, Lord.
Be gracious, we ask in the name of Jesus.